0: This is Bloomberg Law
1: with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. I think he should resign. It's not often that the president of the United States calls for the resignation of a governor in his own party. But President Biden is just one of those calling for the resignation of New York Governor Andrew Cuomo after a New York attorney general's report corroborated 11 claims of sexual harassment by Cuomo. The one-time Democratic star denies the allegations. I want you to know directly from me that I never touched anyone inappropriately or made inappropriate sexual advances. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig. Generally, what did the report find and how convincing was it?
2: So the report basically found that Governor Cuomo has engaged in a month-long pattern of conduct of sexually harassing and arguably sexually assaulting in at least one incident various women, including many of whom worked for him or worked for the state. How convincing is it? I found the evidence to be quite convincing when you put it all together, starting with the fact that you have 11 different complainants. I mean, think about what a massive conspiracy it would take for all 11 of these complainants to be sort of making things up or making up the, the important details around what happened. And if you look at the report, you know, it was written by June Kim and another investigator June was a colleague of mine at the SDNY, I should say, but it really reads like a prosecution memo. That's not to suggest there's necessarily a criminal element to this. There's arguably one piece that could be criminal, but the methodical approach that he takes to weaving the evidence together and to showing how this isn't just sort of claims unsubstantiated by anything else. The testimony given by the 11 women largely corroborates each other, and there's all sorts of other documents, texts, emails that support it. So to me, it puts forth a fairly compelling case.
1: When the Attorney General said that Cuomo broke federal and state laws, which laws was she referring to?
2: that was a bit of imprecise phrasing that I think was not ideal because people hear this person broke the law and the first thing they think of is prison, right? Oh, you broke the law, you go to jail. What Attorney General James was saying there was that there could be both civil and criminal laws. Now, The one piece of the case that could be criminal, it looks like, or most criminal, is the allegation that the governor reached up the blouse and cupped the breast of one state employee. If that's proven, if you had that on videotape, for example, then that could be a New York state crime for forcible touching. The rest of it, though, and what it seems like the AG was referring to, could be something that people could sue under for violation of civil laws. So we're talking about money damages, for example, for sexual harassment, for retaliation for hostile work environment. So I think DAG should have been a little more precise in her wording there. I don't know if she was intentionally imprecise. But the vast majority of this report, while it outlines conduct that's disgraceful and disgusting, only a very small portion of it appears to be potentially criminal.
1: Talking about that potential criminal case, district attorneys in Albany, Manhattan, and Westchester say they're investigating the alleged sexual misconduct by Governor Cuomo. The district attorney in Albany told NBC, The allegations early on certainly led myself and other prosecutors with concurrent jurisdiction to believe that criminal activity had in fact taken place, but we will conduct our own independent investigation. He said a formal complaint is necessary, but they've made overtures, the investigators, to several women and tried to make contact with them, and he said that hasn't happened. So how unusual is it for a DA to start an investigation without a criminal complaint?
2: DAs and and other prosecutors can start investigations based on whatever they want. Sometimes you'll have a complaint from a citizen, with some narrow exceptions. Sometimes the police will bring you something. Sometimes you'll develop something through an informant or through a cooperating witness. But this all is not as formal as people sometimes make it out, right? There's a big thing of I hereby refer this case to the district attorney. Anyone can refer anything to any prosecutor. In both prosecutors' offices where I work, we had incoming referrals and complaints all day long from sources, credible and not, political and not, official and not. The prosecutor can open an investigation, generally speaking, on whatever he or she sees as legitimate and well-founded, and and a lot of this standing on ceremony is just sort of excuse-making or over-formalizing. Nobody needs to say, I hereby refer, I hereby make a formal complaint. The DA can investigate whatever they think is
1: well-founded. If proven, this would constitute misdemeanor sexual assault, I assume. How often does something like misdemeanor sexual assault in the workplace get criminally charged?
2: Well, I can't answer that because we don't know the denominator, right? That, you know, unfortunately, sexual assault is one of the most underreported crimes. There's a long history of data on that. So it's impossible to know how often this happens and doesn't get reported. It's also, frankly, not possible to know how often it gets reported and then not prosecuted. I will tell you that sexual assault is traditionally underreported, prosecuted, And, you know, off the top of my head, I can't think of many, if any, workplace cases. That's not to say they shouldn't be charged, though, but there's a lot of pressures and factors coming to bear that make it difficult on victims, really, to come forward. It's not fair to victims. and It's something that I think prosecutors need to be aware
1: of. It seems like there's a lot of pressure to charge Cuomo criminally, but it may not go anywhere, in fact.
2: Well, again, focusing on the one victim identified in the report as executive assistant number one, she has her account. She was willing to come forward and speak to the, to the AG's office investigators. And so If I'm the DA investigating this case, that's my first phone call. I would want to speak to that executive assistant. I think it's worth noting, if you look at the report, the AG's investigators, including June Kim, who was a longtime federal prosecutor, concluded that she was credible and well-supported and they rejected Governor Cuomo's denial of that incident as being not credible and not believable. So that's at least the view that June Kim and the investigators came to. But of course, the Albany DA will have to do its own investigation. And come to its own conclusion.
1: And what's your reaction to Cuomo's response, his denials?
2: It was not compelling. It was incomplete. There was quite a bit of distraction. And look, denialism, I mean, we say that in a negative phrase, and it is, but I mean, everyone's entitled to deny things. Everyone's entitled to deny allegations. But here's the problem. First of all, categorical statement he says, "At no time did I engage in involuntary touching or I never involuntarily touched anybody that 's just impossible to square with the report and it's not as if it's the word of one person versus the word of another person it's the word of quite a few people against the word." Of one person. All the stuff where the governor showed photos of himself hugging and kissing and sort of caressing other people in public, I found to be a bit manipulative and unconvincing. I mean, first of all, you know, the way you would hug somebody, a family member, you know, that's not really comparable to this. And I think it sort of trivializes the nature of the complaints made against him.
1: Let's talk about the possibility of civil cases. What kinds of charges do you see if civil cases were brought?
2: Yeah, so any of these uh, 11 women, all of them, none, some, um, has the, the option to file a civil lawsuit, which would seek money damages. The, the claims would be sexual harassment. The claim could be uh, workplace retaliation. The claims could be hostile work environment. Um, you know, you have to prove your case in a civil case by, by preponderance, meaning by 50.1%, which is a much lower bar than in the criminal context. And you have to prove damages, that you are monetarily damaged, but, but emotional distress and that kind of thing do uh, do count. They do suffice. So we will see. And people could, by the way, file suit against Andrew Cuomo as an individual. They could file suit against the state of New York if he was acting in his official capacity. And if there were, you know, one of the interesting things about this report is there's other state of state employees around the governor who helped him with cover-ups and retaliatory measures. So that's how civil lawsuits could play out.
1: Now, there is pressure for Cuomo to resign from the president on down the political spectrum. If he doesn't, the state assembly has the power to impeach him. How would impeachment work on the state level?
2: Yeah, so New York... State impeachment is actually similar to, but a bit different from the federal impeachment that we all, unfortunately, have become all too familiar with because it's happened twice in the last year and change, thanks to Donald Trump. So the impeachment at the state level starts in the state assembly, which is like the U.S. House of Representatives, but only in New York state. That requires a simple majority vote, like in in the U.S. House. But a couple big differences. One, the New York state requirement does not require high crimes and misdemeanors, unlike in the federal process the New York state impeachment provisions don't specify what types of offenses. So it's much broader. The other thing is, if he is impeached before he's tried, Governor Cuomo will formally lose power. He's out temporarily, at least as governor, and the lieutenant governor becomes the acting governor. That's, of course, different than in our system. Then the governor is to be tried in not just the New York State Senate, but a sort of unusual body comprised of the state Senate Plus the seven judges on New York's highest court, the Court of Appeals, that body together tries the case, and then it takes two thirds of that body in order to convict and disqualify him. But it would be analogous to if the U.S. Senate plus the U.S. Supreme Court handled an impeachment trial in the federal system, which of course is not the way it works.
1: Tell us about the federal investigation of Cuomo.
2: We don't know a whole lot about it. There has been an investigation by DOJ about whether people in the administration gave false information to federal investigators about the numbers of COVID deaths. The question is whether people in the administration were trying to falsify or give disingenuous responses in order to minimize the political damage. But if you make false statements to federal investigators intentionally, that could be a crime.
1: And the attorney general says she's continuing her investigation of Cuomo with respect to his book and whether public resources were utilized.
2: Yes, yes, which would be essentially a misappropriation of state resources, state funds. Exactly. So we'll see where the AG goes. You know, one of the dynamics here is the governor has tried to say this is political. The AG, Letitia James, wants to become governor, uh, which may or may not be true. But I I have a hard time with that. Uh, First of all, The investigation done into the sexual harassment allegations was done by independent investigators. Many of the people calling for his resignation are Democrats. And the people who made these allegations, who actually came forward, these accusers, these women, you can't say that that's something that Letitia James or anyone else put them up to. So I think that's a very unconvincing defense.
1: And just explain why, as the AG said several times yesterday, this is the end of what she can do.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's not necessarily the end of what she can do. It apparently is the end of what she's willing to do. But I think her message here is, okay, if there's going to be criminal charges, we will leave that up to the DAs. And if there's going to be impeachment processes, that's in the hands of the New York state legislature and then Senate. So I guess it's, it's roughly akin to where Robert Mueller left things off. If you remember when he did his report, he said, here are my findings and I'm out now. You know, Congress, if you want to impeach, that's your prerogative. Other prosecutors, if you want to bring charges, you know, once the president's out of office, you can do that. Of course, the governor doesn't have those same protections. So Letitia James has made the decision that this opinion is going to be her final word on the matter. And now various other officials have to pick it up.
1: What else could she do as AG? You know,
2: there's not a heck of a lot more. I mean, she could make a, we talked about this earlier, I guess, a formal referral of a criminal investigation or formal referral to the assembly for impeachment proceedings. But both of those things are symbolic. They're not official. They don't carry any official weight. They don't need her to make referrals. But yeah, there's not really much more that she can do. She's authorized this investigation, which happened according to the laws of New York and the reports come out. So You know, there's more she could do sort of symbolically and politically, but if we're just talking about technically, this sort of is the end of the road for the AG on this issue.
1: Thanks for being on the show, Ellie. That's former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig. A federal judge has temporarily blocked Texas state troopers from enforcing the governor's order to stop anyone who isn't in law enforcement from transporting migrants across the Texas border. This came in response to the Biden administration suing Texas to block Governor Greg Abbott's order allowing state troopers to stop vehicles suspected of transporting migrants on grounds that they may spread COVID-19. The administration warns the practice would exacerbate problems amid high levels of crossing on the state's border with Mexico. Joining me is Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. Tell me about the Texas governor's executive order.
0: So the Texas governor issued an executive order last week that basically said that any officer in Texas could stop any conveyance or vehicle that they thought was being used to transport people who had crossed the southern border without status and basically take those human beings who did not have status and return them back to either where their trip began or to the port of entry themselves, where they actually either crossed or closest to where they crossed. And the idea behind this executive order was that Texas would not be used, according to the governor, as a transport location where basically people would come in from the south of Texas and then leave through Texas into the rest of the United
1: States. Are most of the people that they're picking up actually people who are under the authority of the federal government and are transporting migrants?
0: So the problem with this case, which is why the federal government is suing the state of Texas, is – the, there's an exception in the order that says if you're being transported by the federal government, then or state or local government, whatever, but some government official, then the state of Texas and their police and their authorities won't stop you and interdict you and bring you back to your original destination. But the problem is a lot of the individuals who are transporting people who have recently crossed the southern border are actually contractors employed by the federal government, but aren't actually federal government employees. So they can't show you a badge. They're from some company, Brand X Transportation. And Brand X Transportation has gotten into a contract with the federal government to take, for instance, unaccompanied minors from a border patrol facility to a shelter operated by the Office of Refugee Resettlement. Or it has contracted to take Adults from the CBP facilities in the border to an ICE facility somewhere else in Texas. And those contractors could conceivably get stopped. And so that is a situation that the federal government wanted to sue about because they said, we don't want you stopping our contractors who are trying to make the system operate here.
1: Let me ask you this. Are there that many migrants who are being transported, not under federal government authority, but are being transported, that you want to have an executive order to stop it?
0: Well, here's the problem. So just today, there's news that says that about 200,000 people tried to enter the United States through the southern border, most of them through Texas, because in the other states there's fencing, and so most people go through Texas where there's less fencing and those individuals you, we're talking 200,000 a month we're talking then at the end of the day a uh, a large you know over 1.4 million over the course of a year and so what what happens is many of those individuals don't actually end up wanting to stay in Texas some do but then some want to go to Los Angeles or Chicago or New York or somewhere else and uh, that because that's with, that's where they have their particular family members and so what happens is If you are, let's say you're an unaccompanied minor and you're actually processed, through the southern border into an ORR facility and then processed to a sponsor, what the governor of Texas is saying is saying, I object to this process continuing. I don't even want these people coming into the United States, much less being transported through the state of Texas to some other state. And so he's trying to sort of take back the whatever power he thinks he might be able to credibly assert to try to move people back toward the southern border.
1: But he framed his executive order as a way to prevent the spread of COVID-19.
0: Correct. And that's what was a little bit complicated about this, because there's two criticisms that are being levied here, which is, first, it's hard to say you're doing this to, to stop the spread of COVID-19, and at the same time, you also have mandates that nobody nobody's going to wear masks in Texas. So that's one criticism that the authorities are levying at, at the governor. But second, that this is really about stopping illegal immigration. It's not about stopping COVID. And so that justification shouldn't be given.
1: So the Justice Department wrote a letter. They tried to settle this. And then finally, they sued. What are the grounds that they're suing under?
0: Essentially, it's all about federal preemption, which is that states don't have the authority to interfere with the federal government and its execution of federal laws and so regardless of whether it's federal officials themselves who work for ICE or CBP who are not covered by this order or even federal contractors who are working pursuant to contracts to do what a federal official would be doing except for the fact that it's being contracted out to a private company to do. The state government does not have authority to interfere with these operations of the federal government. So there's the Supremacy Clause, the Take Care Clause, and all of these various clauses, preemption, all have to do with the fact that basically the state does not have authority here to interfere with the federal government's execution of immigration laws, because that is a federal issue that Congress entrusted to the federal government, and no one state could interfere, because you could imagine a difficult patchwork of 50 different state laws with regard to this issue, where you would almost have an impossibility of navigating how people are supposed to go through the United States if every state has a different rule for under what way you can actually transport people through their state.
1: Texas Governor Greg Abbott came back and said he has emergency authority to control the movements of people during a disaster.
0: The court has to scrutinize whether the authority is properly being exercised vis-a-vis the national emergency, number one, or the state emergency in this case, vis-a-vis COVID, whether it's pretextual or whether, even if it's not pretextual, you can do it, but not to this extent that you're interfering with federal operations. But certainly, for instance, as an example, you could certainly say, hey, because of the COVID-19 emergency, nobody's allowed to travel more than five miles outside of home for the next two weeks after 10 p.m. at night or something like that. States have that police power authority to do that. But the question becomes when you're doing it against a certain segment of people and in a certain manner and it's not tailored toward actually – the COVID-19 issue, but it's actually tailored toward an issue that's related toward federal laws, in this case, immigration. That's where this becomes a much more difficult case for the state to win.
1: I know that pro-immigration groups are arguing that the directive encourages racial profiling of Latinos.
0: Well, certainly it depends on how it's implemented. And one of the arguments that Texas is making in the court is, well, you don't even know how we're implementing this yet because we haven't even decided how we're implementing this yet. So you can't issue an injunction until you can actually determine our implementation instructions, which we're going to issue. So that argument cuts both ways because we don't know what will happen. But certainly as we don't know what will happen, there's two ways this kind of thing can be enforced. So for instance, if all you had were Texas police officials standing outside of CBP facilities and ICE facilities and ORR facilities saying, hey, you can't drive this truck or van, wherever you think it's going, it has to stay here. That will lead to some supremacy clause issues, but it wouldn't lead to racial profiling issues because you would know that the people in those vehicles were the people you were actually targeted. But if you were picking people up in the middle of just the highway and saying, this looks like it has a vehicle with undocumented people on it, well, that certainly, you have no basis to say that other than what you think are characteristics about the appearance of undocumented people, that is certainly going to be much more problematic. And because we don't know how it would be applied, that's why these criticisms may or may not be valid.
1: So this time the Biden administration gets to pick the judge, I guess, right? Yes,
0: there's a district court in El Paso where the court, where the case is being heard. Judge was appointed by President Bush, by the, by George W. Bush. And the judge You know, gave the case very good consideration at the hearing yesterday, and it's unclear what the judge is going to do other than an order will be issued imminently on whether to enjoin this or to wait until Texas actually starts implementing this and issues guidance on how it's going to implement it.
1: So I want to ask you a question about the number of migrants crossing the southern border is surging. The number of times border officials caught migrants crossing illegally in June was the highest monthly figure since April of 2000. And more than a third of those crossings were attempted by a repeat crosser. So the Biden administration has decided to leave in place the public health rule. Tell us about the public health rule that's allowed them during COVID to turn away migrants
0: sure under title 42 of the united states code which is not part of the immigration code but is part of the public health code the public health officials in in, in this case the cdc can say during an emergency like covid You are not to admit anybody from outside of the United States inside of the United States. They have very broad authority, which even theoretically could apply to citizens. But nevertheless, uh, they haven't they have not applied it ever to citizens or to lawful green card holders or anything like that. But they have applied it on the southern border, beginning with the Trump administration and now with the Biden administration to say that if you are coming across the southern border and seek to enter to ask for asylum of them normally you would be allowed to enter to do that while your case is pending. You'd be allowed to enter and you'd either be detained or not detained, but you'd be inside the territorial grounds of the United States. Well, not under this Title 42. This allows the government to actually refuse for the human being to enter the United States and instead to take custody of the human being for the purposes of pushing them back into Mexico. And so that's what's been happening under Title 42, and there's a lawsuit that's been pending. That the lawyers from the ACLU are saying that now it's been seven months into the Biden administration, it's time to end the Title 42 blockade. And so the question just becomes whether a court would end up viewing this as something a, it can review, period, and b, if it can review, under what level of deference do you give? And it'd be, I think, it'd be very hard. For the plaintiffs in this case to say that in the middle of what we have now with the Delta variant, the government couldn't impose Title 42 authorities, but it remains to be seen.
1: In late July, the governor of Texas deployed the Texas National Guard to assist state police in arresting undocumented immigrants on trespassing charges right, and detaining them in state prisons. Is that allowed
0: so here's what's interesting. So the last case that dealt with this issue was Arizona versus the United States, where Governor Jan Brewer at the time and the state legislature had actually passed a law doing the same thing, saying trespassing into Arizona is illegal. And that case was decided on a six to three um, Supreme Court breakdown that had at that time four liberal justices, plus Justice Roberts and Justice Kennedy. So, What's ended up happening now is the court doesn't have those votes anymore to maintain Arizona. They're not guaranteed votes. And so what Texas is trying to do is to re-tee up this issue, because there were three justices at the time, Thomas and Alito are still there, Scalia is not there, but there are potentially Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Coney Barrett now, that could decide what the three justices in the dissent had decided in Arizona, which is... Is that immigration is just like drugs where there are federal drug laws and state drug laws and you can complement them to each other and there's no reason a state can't criminalize illegal immigration just like the federal government does and so that's the question that would be potentially teed up to the court if this actually happens in a large scale such that this actually all the way gets all the way to the Supreme Court is whether the Arizona decision should be maintained or whether state can take it into their own hands to arrest people who don't have proper immigration status.
1: Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Leon. That's Leon Fresco of Holland and Knight. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And please tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio.